Hello, everybody, and welcome to Season 4 of iWolves with your host, Ian Dunbar, Kelly Dunbar, and me, Jamie Dunbar. So, what are we going to talk about this week, Jamie? Well, this week's video is actually inspired a little bit by another video by uh, John Rogerson, who posted a, a rant called The Last Mongrel in Britain on YouTube. Found, found very compelling, it had some very interesting points, and it was kind of about the decline of the mongrel in Britain, and the mongrel being kind of the community dog breed that just kind of developed organically in different villages. You, you, you don't mean the decline of the mongrel, you mean decline in mongrel numbers. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, the mongrel's still the good old mongrel, it's just there aren't so oh, many of them. The mongrel's still the doing mongrel. good, there's just not very many of them about. Yeah. So, uh, John was saying that in England, the, the number of dogs who are pure pedigrees has gone way up, and the number of mongrels has gone way down. And so even if you go into shelter now, and it says mongrel on the, you know, the name tag, it's likely to be a cross between two pure breeds. There's very mm -hmm. few, you know, dogs that are mutts of, of a whole bunch of different breeds. Few Heinz 57s. And he's saying that this is a great tragedy, that, um, that the mongrel was, in essence, a pet dog. That's what it, it evolved to be. It was a community's um, dogs all mixed together, and then kind of uh, bred for, you know, not, not bred intentionally, but bred accidentally. Developed. Right, it just kind of evolved based on what the community's needs were. And so it fit for, uh, for being a pet dog. Whereas these pure pedigree dogs, have been evolved to be very specific things, which often they are not being used for anymore. Now they're being used for pet dogs. And so their genetic history is tailored for something they're not doing right now. And can like putting a square peg into a round hole, if you, mm -hmm. in some cases, you know, these dogs have jobs and, you know, the job description for pet dog is very different than job description for being a working oh, colleague. absolutely. For instance. Right. Hugely so. And getting on with people, especially men and children, is a big difference right there. I mean, that's the number one job as a, a companion animal. But uh, if you're hunting pheasants, you don't care. There's not many children running around. Mm -hmm. There's pheasants to locate and bring back. In fact, maybe some of the, um, the skills that were bred for in pure pedigree dogs are actually against what you'd want in a, a pet dog. Right, you know. Oh, absolutely, like endurance. Activity <laughs> levels. Exactly. Hypervigilance. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, um, things right. Super loyalty. Hyper, you know, they, they, they never turn off. Being myopic, you know, like mm -hmm. the dog that only will focus on the ball or the sheep or moving objects, you know. Yeah. White lights. Yeah. And so he sees this as being a part of the problem, which is um, hurting pet dogs in general, that you have these pure breeds that, uh, that aren't very good pet animals. Um, that aren't behaving well and people aren't training very well and so now that's leading towards kind of a societal shift where um, governments are forcing animals to be segregated from children so he was saying how in England now there are lots of you know parks which are there's the dog park and there's the children park um, and that this is really a problem for future socialization both for the kids and the dogs. Oh, it's a vicious circle, yeah. Right, so the less time they're spending interacting, the less time either of them are learning how to interact with each other. And so he, he foresees the decline of, of pet dogs, the, the health of you know, pets in society. So we thought it was very interesting. Especially, um, he had uh, another point about spaying and neutering and how that uh, 
studies about communities where spaying and neutering programs have put, put into place haven't actually seen a decline in pet population. And this or notion, a shelter population. Right, right in, in unwanted dogs. And so this notion of kind of unintended consequences where we may have a, a great idea that looks good on paper, encouraging responsible dog owners to spay and neuter their dogs, but his kind of one-line point was, if you tell responsible people to spay and neuter their dogs, they will. Irresponsible people. Right, so who will it leave yeah. not? And that the fewer dogs there are, the more expensive dogs become, the greater incentive there is for people who want to breed dogs for profit and not for dogs' well-being. And so with you know few dogs and a great profit incentive, you'll have people breeding dogs just to turn a buck. And those people aren't going to care about you know genetic health behavior, socialization, all those really important things. I'm really glad you said these things publicly. These are the kind of things that I, at least several of my friends and I have, have discussed privately and never brought forward. Um, and the, the idea that you know, we're losing the pet dog, he calls it the mongrel, I would say the pet dog, even if it's just the, um, even if it is specifically, specific breeds, you know, mm -hmm. uh, I think that you still have the you kind know, of the dogs that are pet quality, you know, that are, that are not so fancy and maybe not as, as high-end um, performance dogs right. that still kind of look like a, a Labrador Retriever or a Golden Retriever or just a, or a mongrel. The idea is that, yeah, the responsible people with the pets that are living in the home successfully for 10, 15 years are generally spayed and neutered. They're not breeding. The ones that are breeding aren't the ones that, um, even if you're looking at, at and pedigrees again aren't the ones that are living with people for the most part. These are show dogs, and or working dogs, but mostly show dogs um, that may or may not have the temperament to live in a family environment. And um, yeah, the the, the 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 good pet dog is being is being eliminated from the gene pool. Right. You know. Yeah, I, I think this has, I mean, enormous repercussions on um, the physical health and the behavior. Of pet dogs, that if we have a, a, a mandate that says we will spay and neuter um, dogs, and, and the ones which are spayed and neutered are owned by responsible owners, um, that's not really selectively breeding for good natured temperaments. Um, and so we've lost our reservoir of good genes, if you like. And so, oh yeah, I, I'm all for spaying and neutering um, any dog that comes, that shows any breed-specific disease, that has uh, any disease before he's seven years old, I would say, give me the scalpel and I'll cut his nuts off right away. I mean, I'm, I'm all for spaying and neutering if there's a reason. Um, but I would like to see bred um, Dogs that, I mean, Kelly knows my view on this. I mean, I, I wrote this years ago, this seven-star stud program. Um, I personally would have a rule, no male dog can breed till he's seven years old. He's healthy and he's friendly. Mm -hmm. And um, if at any time he is unfriendly, um, and, and I don't just mean, you know, one incident, but if he's continually picking fights with other dogs or he's continually uh, biting people, I would say, Let, let's neuter the animal really quickly. Um, if on the other hand he develops a medical condition, I would say, oh, let's, let's, let's make him healthy again, but let's neuter him. On the other hand, you know, what I want to see, it's like I had a chat with Dune the other day, he's eight now, 
And I was saying, you know, Doom, you're getting very close to the point where I'd like to see you bred because you are an exceptional dog. You're healthy and you've yet to be in a dog fight. He's been attacked many times, but he just stands there and takes it. You have a tremendous temperament. Mm -hmm. And I'm so glad that we didn't have you castrated when you were young. And the decisions were for other reasons, for competition and what have you, for some reason, you have to have testicles on to compete. I don't understand Well, because it, you're testing for breed standards yeah. and health. No, no, I, do, I was, I was being silly, you know that. But the point is now, here we have one dog, and I would say, yeah, we really do need to breed him. Because the pet dog is one that's still alive at 14 and still friendly. And we're losing that. There's a lot of breeds that I could mention that if you get one of these puppies, you know, he's probably going to be dead before he's five or seven years old and you're going to have an enormous veterinary bill because, you know, this breed doesn't have a heart, for example. These breeds don't have eyes. This breed has skin conditions. They, and the whole Imperial College study um, showed this, that the, the genetical diversity in purebred dogs comes down to the equivalent of 25 to 50 individuals in a breed. Mm -hmm. This is this is disgusting. Well, not only that, and but it's, that in and of itself doesn't make them unhealthy, does it? It's that people are breeding for superficial qualities that are not health-related, and yeah, their genes are uh, tied to certain yeah. physical characteristics. I mean, that, that's the point I was making. On the one hand, the spay and neuter program only spays and neuters dogs belonging to responsible owners. It has nothing to do with physical health or behavioral health. In the purebred world, it comes down largely to confirmation. And if you're breeding for confirmation, you are certainly not breeding for physical health and, and behavioral health as well. And let's say confirmation and, of the fancy, not confirmation of the dog. Let's precisely. think about that. And, and I have nothing wrong with... So, if you just fill me in, what is confirmation? Oh, looks. <laughs> looks. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, you mean um, it to mean looks, but what it really should mean is the physical structure. It should be looks and function. So in yeah. many European countries, it would be the dog looks this way because his bones are made this way, therefore he can walk and run this way. But when we get a dog covered with fluffy, puffy hair and we cut their tails off and cut their ears off, I mean, who knows what's underneath? So, and I don't want to antagonize people here that, that really fancy a particular breed because there's some breeds I, I love to, I don't want to marry them, but I, I'd love the dickens out of them, uh -huh. like Malamutes and, and cattle dogs we and all have our and French Bulldogs. Yeah, I'm all for breeding for confirmation. However, it's way down third on my list. The number one thing I would breed for is that dog's still alive at 10 and he knows how to do it. That means he's healthy. Right. Physical health is the number one indicator of physical health <laughs> and behavioral health. Right. Okay. The second thing is I would specifically breed and or, of course, spay and castrate for mental health, behavioral health. Not only does the dog have to be alive at 10 and know how to do it on his own, but also he's a friendly dog. He's cool. He likes people. Now, whether there's any genetic correlation there or not, I'm going to take the remotest chance and I only want to breed dogs which are healthy, alive, healthy and friendly. Third on my list would be, and he looks like a beagle. Mm -hmm. Alright, we'll breed him with another beagle. So there's nothing wrong with breeding for confirmation in terms of good bone structure, good carriage. But the, my, my point yeah. is, the irony is that confirmation no longer requires good bone structure. No, it now it's actually no. exaggerated. 
looks in a lot of reads. They become more and more exaggerated over the years. Mm -hmm. um, so for instance, there's a, um, a painting at the top of the stairs you may see when you, uh, in, the, in the landing. There's mm -hmm. a dog. Um, do you know what I'm talking about? It's resting on the table? No. No. Okay. Well, anyway. the, the painting is resting on the table, yeah. not the dog resting on the table. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's been there for several years, and most people look at it and they think, "Oh, that's a pit bull." And it's not. It's an old painting of a Great Dane. Mm, but and back when Great Danes looked less extreme. Yes. yes. And right. less great. Less, and and pitbulls were less. Uh, you know, Amstaffs were less extreme as well. So, um, you know, maybe maybe it wasn't as. Um, it's dynamic of a difference, and so right. everybody, I don't think anyone's ever gotten the read right when they when they go and look at that painting, right. and um, now they've made them so extreme that I would say their confirmation is it's irony that they're calling it confirmation because I would say their confirmation is mostly compromised by um, extreme. Um, what's the word? Extreme. By being extreme. <laughs> yeah, by the just the, the sheer growth rate. Yeah, a lot of growth problems. Or, you so. know, the way they want a dog to stand a certain way, or have a certain stifle, or... I mean, I think the, yeah, and also the, the heart of the problem, which I don't think there's really a, an easy solution to, is this nature that, the nature that um, having a litter doesn't require, I mean, that anyone can have a litter, any idiot can have a litter. Sorry, <laughs> if they have the dogs, it's a right. better way. Yeah. And any person, their dog could... Have right, the fact that we can't control these things, yes. or that there aren't society rules about Well, it. no, but the thing is, the irony there is that the things that John, John Rogerson's talking about, the mongrel, those were the dogs were bred by any idiot. Right. I'm making air quotes, people. Mm -hmm. you can't see that. Uh, you know, but, but those were the dogs that were just breeding naturally on their own. They were pet dogs living, you know... In the in the world, whereas now, um, no, most most idiots, <laughs> most people don't don't let their dogs breed, and it's left to the professionals only, which have their well, own agendas, and it's not necessarily you know, back, for pet dogs. Back then, cases. of course, right. when we get to the the whole street mongrel thing, um, there's a lot of choice there by the female dogs who they're going to breed with. I mean, this is part of the research we did at Berkeley, um, which I thought was really cool. And they were probably breeding for health themselves. I, I don't know what they were breeding for, but they, they were breeding for something. And, and with many female dogs, had very strong social preferences, like best friends. But when they came in heat, they weren't interested in their best friend. They were interested in these two other male dogs here, or one other male dog. And the, and the only dogs they would allow to mate would be highly specific preferences. And then when they come out of heat, their season is over they go back to living with their best friend again. So it was very clear they had social preferences, who we hang out with socially, but when it comes to breeding, they had very, very clear and significant breeding preferences. We didn't know why, we just knew it happened every heat cycle. And, and, and basically, with and, every... Oh, I'm sorry. No, I'm just saying, and I, in some cases, I think the female dog does know best. Well, with, with what we've learned with um, even human olfactory testing of um, genetics and preferences, um, the book, the great book, The Scent of Desire, it, it really goes into this. Um, women, to, um, when they uh, when they are ovulating, have a, a keener sense of smell than they do for mm -hmm. the rest of the month. Human women. And um, I guess I guess I wouldn't call what it. A, what a human, I don't know. Human and, um, <laughs> they and then and that they have a very clear preference for mm -hmm. the perspiration of, of, of certain people. They always choose the um, perspiration of the person that is most genetically different 
than them. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm obviously condensing this, but basically they're choosing for a reason, and it has nothing to do with what they look like or who they hang right. out with. Yeah, so the, the choice uh, for hybrid vigor. Yes. This is what a, a lot of animals Which do is when left of, to their own devices. And, and as Ian stated earlier, that's not even allowed in the in the pet, in the in the dog breeding world because if there's only a difference of twenty five to fifty individuals, that's not really giving you much much mm -hmm. much chance for hybrid vigor. First of all, but as seeing as dogs are even more olfactory based than humans, I can't imagine there isn't a tremendous genetic component to who they're selecting. You know, for, for health, for yeah. breeding, you know? I think, again, you know, we have to change public attitudes. And when someone's looking for a dog, if they do choose to get a purebred puppy, um, we need to let them know, number one, um, look at the pedigree. And if you see the same name written down twice, maybe, you know, it's, it's a little much. If you see the same name written down four times in the pedigree, it's too much. You don't want your dog's father to be his uncle and his grandpa. What do you and, say and about that? What if, what if they've got something good? I'm just curious about, you know, when people lie and breed, and may, what if it is for health? What if, if you've got... They also have something bad. You see, the whole thing about genes is you may have something good, but you have something bad. So you want to bring in something afresh from outside and then pick out the individuals that have that good trait. But this is where I, I find a lot of breeders, you know, completely this line breeding thing, they misunderstand what selective breeding is. And with selective breeding, you keep needing to add in these outcrosses. You need it all the time. And then you only breed the animals which have the traits you want. Okay. I guess they're just afraid so, they're going to lose their edge of what they love if they, if they, you know, what they love about their line. Well, regardless you know, of what the breeders love, let's talk about what the pet owners love. And the pet owners, I think, want to get a dog that's going to be around for at least 14 years. So my next piece of advice is, once you've looked at the pedigree, ask to see the dog's parents and grandparents and great-grandparents and check they're still alive when they're at least 10. My third piece of advice is then test drive them. Don't play with the puppies. I mean, anyone can play with a puppy and it will seduce you. No, play with the parents, the grandparents, and the great-grandparents, test drive them, take them from a walk, and they will tell you everything you need to know about this breed. And so I, I think, again, we need to change things by educating the pet owner. And, and, and the pet owner can vote with their feet. And, and there are brilliant breeders out there that are doing a, a tremendous job with, with almost any breed that you can mention. And for a pet owner, I would say, look for them. I mean, like, I remember I was up in Canada once, and I was at a dog show, and um, they had a parade of champions. And um, these dogs come walking in, and they were Newfoundlands. And one came in, and he was 12. I said, oh, wow, you know, 12-year-old Newfoundland said, oh, no, his father and his grandfather are coming next. And they were then competing in obedience the next day. I thought, damn, that's brilliant, man. If I were ever going to get a Newfie, I'd get it from this breeder. You know, look for longevity. That is the number one thing to look for when you're searching for a puppy. Find evidence that the great-great-grandparents are still alive. But going, going back to the mongrel issue, how do, we, how do you dance on that fine line of... I mean, you know, we're thinking about what dogs are bred for right now. If they're bred by a breeder, they're probably not bred as pet dogs. You know, the, the dogs that are sold as pet dogs are usually secondary. You know, they, they're breeding for other... for show dogs, and they're breeding mm -hmm. for, for sport. Uh, for competition dogs, and the pet dogs are kind of the second rung as far as they're concerned, right? So they're not breeding for pet dog, you know, um, quality. 
Um, yet most of their dogs, ironically, are going to go into pet homes. Uh, if you go to a puppy mill, uh, meaning you're getting your dog from a pet store or one of those online breeders in Arkansas, um, hello, first hand people uh, selling dogs online, but um, you know, they're not breeding for pet dogs because they're breeding for profit. I mean, they are breeding the majority of pet dogs, but the, these dogs are, getting, are definitely treated as livestock and aren't getting any socialization there's really nothing. I, I predict the way it's going to go. I mean, I totally agree with John. He's, he's always been very far-sighted, and I think the mongrel is under threat. But I think soon we will have a new type of breeder, um, a breeder that, number one, does breed for pet dogs, and they look for the best of the best from various pure breeds. They put them in. We already have a first-generation cross you know, um, designer breeds, you know, the poos, and poos. The poos and the doodles. Mm -hmm. And I think they will take this one step further that they will cross poos with doodles. <laughs> and, and then, you know, they'll add in a bit of Mal and they'll add in a bit of Shep. Well, people um, do this and they're they frowned upon. They're yeah. frowned upon as doing breeding for a profit. But, no, they will be breeding for exactly the things I say. We're breeding for longevity. We're breeding for physical health. We're breeding for behavioral health. They're being raised properly. And it will be a designer breed. Why? You're getting a very rare dog. You're getting a unique you're, dog. You're getting a unique dog. One that is physically and mentally healthy. Mm -hmm. And man, you're going to pay some it's money for it, a, but it's worth it. House training and socialization program. Yeah. Precisely. Of weeks of yeah. You know, that's so funny you say that. I mean, think about um, two of our favorite well-behaved dogs in our own personal lives, which would be Ollie and Oso. Both mixed breeds. I guess Oso was mm -hmm. a cross, but Ollie was some who knows what. Um, they both, both lived very long, they were very social, and I'm sure that you heard this with Oso, I know I did with Ollie, over and over, people would fall in love with him and say, I wish he, he, I wish he were a breed. Mm -hmm. I wish I could get one. Yeah, yeah. I love this I dog, you know, mm -hmm. and he's, he's one of a kind. Right, we just need one-eighth of this, and one-sixteenth yeah. of that, and... <laughs> but I, I think that's what will happen, and, and people will wise up, they will keep records. You see, and this is the sad thing, the kennel clubs could do this right now. They could run a computer base, and they could come up with a coefficient of this dog, this male, what is the average age of his forebears. They would give him a health, a longevity quotient. It could be done easily, you know, it's simple. Um, and I just, I mean, I had two Malamutes in my life, and the first one died when he was five, and it was devastating. And I think that's horrible for a family when they get a puppy. When you have a good family, a responsible family, and they do everything, and they make it work, and, and, and then the dog dies when it's five. It's, it's horrible. And um, longevity is the thing. Select for longevity. So John had a couple, he finished his, uh, his video with a couple of rules that he'd like to see put in place, which will never <laughs> he's like me yeah. never ever ruled the world yeah. ever happened um, but I'd be curious to hear what you guys thought about him his proposed law number one was no one can buy or sell a puppy for more than 50 pounds take the money out of it number two was it is a crime to have any litter without a license and the only place to get a license is at your local shelter I, I, I mean off the top of my head I agree especially with number one um, if it isn't about the money then what is it about? Some people right. will, get, as many people would get out of it. Dogs. That would eliminate puppy mills right there. Mm -hmm. I mean, right there, that rule alone. Would, you, there wouldn't be puppy mills in, in the Midwest or in 
Hey, I'm totally with John. I think you shouldn't be able to buy a puppy for over 50 bucks, but, you know, the House of Representatives would go crazy on that one. That's coming through. That would be voted down. <laughs> but I'm all for it. Nope. Or, or the only, <laughs> the only way you could pay more for a puppy is because you're getting the chew toy trained, house toy trained, <laughs> yeah. socialized puppy. That, that's, that right. is a very good training. training. Yeah. But that, um, you can charge for its education. Yeah, so you can't pay more than 50 bucks for a puppy, but you can pay up to $1,000 for the education that's been done prior to eight weeks of age. Yeah, that'd be kind of a loophole that all these people would yeah. use, though. But, and the other one was that the license comes from a local shelter. I don't know whether it has to come from the... I guess the shelter can tell... I guess the idea there is that the local municipality and shelters are keeping the numbers on... How many unwanted dogs, dogs there are, what they types. Come from, and that they would probably microchip or, or, or tattoo or some other, in some, other, some other way identify dogs coming from a breeder. So you get the license, then the dogs, the puppies, right. all have to have this... Once again, time. it goes back to that same problem of if only, um, only responsible people with licenses can breed dogs, well then what about the people who are like, okay, I'm not going to get a license. Yeah, the I'm idea would be enforcement, obviously, right. then, right? With both of those laws, that they would have to be not the only The problem with rules is getting them people to follow them. You see, it's a whole spectre again. I, I, I mean, this has been going on for like the 40 years I, I've been in this field, and I think the way to change is by changing the attitudes of the prospective puppy buyer or prospective adopter. So ultimately, um, they're the people with yes. power and letting them know that you can get a brilliant puppy and you can adopt a brilliant dog. Or you could buy a puppy where you're so far behind you're paying catch up before you begin. Or you could adopt a shelter dog that's a project. And so when they know this and then what to look for, it has to have a knock-on effect to change breeders and shelters to have the behavior programs. We've got to care for the the dog's mental health. Otherwise, it's so stressful. I mean, like, you put yourself in a puppy's paws that no one teaches you what to do, then you come into a house and everything you do, they shout at you and grab you and smack you. I mean, the carpet, I mean, if I were a Doberman puppy, I'd say, no better place to pee. The urine doesn't run and your feet don't get wet. You know, how is he to know? So without the education, that the poor little puppy doesn't know, he's breaking rules that he doesn't even know existed, and then the owners get frustrated, it's lose, 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 lose. And the poor puppy gets stressed, the owners get pissed off, and then we, you know, we generate the whole shelter problem. So I, I think that the, the way we act is with a prospective puppy buyer, that's my number one action there, because all the shelter dogs came from puppies, secondarily potential adopter, and I think the agent of change is the practicing veterinarian because that's the only dog profession that sees puppies on a regular basis when they're eight weeks, ten weeks, twelve weeks old. Sees every puppy. Yep, and if veterinarians said, put up a notice in every vet clinic, when you're getting a puppy, realize you have a choice. Mm -hmm. You could be getting a puppy where you are now going to manufacture another shelter dog because he's behind before you get him, or you could get a puppy where the breeder has really done a good job starting the programs. And, and so I think that's, you know, the, the only way it's going to change. Because as you say, there's no point in changing responsible people. We still don't have the effect on the population and shelter capacity. Right. Making rules from the top down, it's always a matter of enforcement. 
and, and then enforcement from the bottom yeah, up. It raises that whole specter of you know, are we living in a police state? You know, mm -hmm. over a dog's well, testicles or, and or what have it goes you. back to education. And yeah. the education at the front end versus the back end. All these all these podcasts are tying in on this season. Yeah. You know, by you know, uh, supply and demand, educated owners making selections. Uh, and demanding shelters and, and breeders to do the right thing by the animals will make yeah. a change ultimately. And if you are a breeder out there and you're, you're using the open poor minimum mental health guidelines, advertise it. Tell people that you are selling puppies where you have done your very best to prepare them to live with people. I think that's a really good note to end on. Absolutely. I see lots of nods here. Absolutely. Sounds good. So we say goodbye. Thanks for listening, folks. Carry on doing what you're doing now. <laughs> see you <laughs> goodbye, next episode. Everybody. Thank you. Bye.